You're listening to the Footprint Coalition's Downstream Channel. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into humanity's relationship with waste. Robert and Rachel, please welcome Dr. Juliet Shaw, a celebrated sociologist and the best-selling author. Dr. Shaw spent 17 years teaching at Harvard, 11 in the Econ Department, before becoming a sociologist at Boston College. Her studies focus on the environmental and human costs of our modern work-life imbalance. She'll guide us through the social movements of the past century that built the foundation for our wasteful habits today. Juliet Shore, you're here. Here she is. Hi. <laughs> Great to see you. Hi. Great to see you too. Um, so, as we just said, you were uh, you spent 11 years in the Harvard Department of Economics before moving to sociology. So, does one of those uh, fields inform the other and shape the way you approach the subject matter? Yes. I mean, I started studying consumption and consumer culture, and that's what led me from economics to sociology, uh, because consumption always has a, both an economic and a social dimension. Right. And at the time I was uh, starting this, the sort of economics had lost its social, the social dimension. So um, I think you can't understand what we want to buy without understanding our position, people's positions within a social system. Um, so that's why I switched. I'll, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I had a student at Harvard who lived in a house in Arlington, Virginia, and it was the biggest house on the street. And her mother was pretty proud of that. But this was in the era of people buying homes and tearing them down and building the beginnings of the McMansions. Somebody bought the house next door, tore it down, and built a bigger house next to her. And it drove her mother literally crazy. And she <laughs> spent years in the court system trying to stop this house. Her house hadn't changed at all. The house she had loved for so long, but only because it was the biggest one on the street. So you need a social analysis to understand that kind of a dynamic. Got it. It's the keeping up with the Joneses thing, as it were. And plastic seem to have been what kicked off the birth of modern consumerism. So in your estimation, was there a clear tipping point when a focus on disposability took over? Yes. Uh, the current consumer regime is built on disposability, but also on the premise that more is always better, bigger is better, let's keep growing. And this era dates to the period right after the Second World War. And I would say about halfway through that, we kind of we kind of tip into into plastics. The, the early period is first about meeting people's needs for housing and transport and basic appliances and so forth. Um, there was a lot of worry among economists uh, during the Depression and the war that after the war, we knew there was going to be a a sort of spurt of consumerism as people spent what they'd saved during the war. You, you couldn't buy consumer goods during the war. Um, but after that, they thought people would stop buying because they would basically have what they needed. Now, today, that's a quaint idea because what ended up happening was the post-war system created in people the idea that you can never have too much and there is no such thing as enough. But that's a, that's a socially constructed idea. Plastics comes in about halfway through. And I think we can see it in part by looking at global South countries that are going through a similar kind of trajectory where as people get their basic needs met, they too are shifting to disposability. 
I've seen it a lot in India where I've spent a fair amount of time. When I first started going to India in the 1980s, it was a closed-loop system. There was a guy who used to drive by on a bicycle to buy our newspapers. And those newspapers would be used for all sorts of things. They would be have food sold in them and, you know, nothing went to waste. Today, if you go, people are are using all of the single-use uh, disposable plastics. My daughter spent a summer cleaning up beaches that are just strewn with plastic. So there's the point at which once people's income got to a certain point, they could afford to buy those branded plastic goods. Is part of this have to do with advertising and the kind of pre-Mad Men desire to, to try to suggestively tell people they needed more and it was no big deal? And it's so crazy that prior to this idea that they were where we want to head. There was a closed loop system and then somehow or other, why did, why did the Western, for lack of a better uh, terminology, why did the Western ideal wind up proliferating there? So advertising always plays a role um, and especially in the earlier part of the 20th century in the United States, people who were new consumers looked to advertising to sort of learn what they should do. And you do see that in uh, global South countries now, advertising does play a role. But I have always, and I've studied the advertising industry. I wrote a book about advertising to children, which I think is pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Wait, what is that book called? Please tell us what that book is called. Born to Buy. Oh, wait a minute. I remember that book. Mm -hmm. I think for adults, it's less about advertising and it's more about our social context. That sociology point I started with, which Mm -hmm. is we tend to consume to whoever our peer group is or our reference group. So one of the things I found in my research is that people whose friends make more than they do tend to spend more, take on more debt, save less. People who, let's say, you know, people who grew up in modest circumstances and then make it rich, if they don't move, if they don't change their circle of friends, they tend to accumulate a lot. And they, their spending patterns don't move up to their incomes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is more important than advertising. It's, it's what the people in our lives have and buy and how they live. With it, the following caveat, we increasingly have friends who are online, whether it's actually the TV show friends or just our social media friends. So there is a way in which I think the content of media matters, but but more than the advertising. Mm-hmm. And is that where the infatuation to own things actually comes from? Is this comparative thing with your peer group? Or, I mean, do you think it's really just... Um, you know, more about, you know, it, the kind of the dopamine hit that you get from when you receive something, when you own it, when you feel like you are in charge of it. I think it's much more the former. I mean, that is my bias, but I think we get the dopamine hit because of the social meaning. Mm-hmm. So when all my friends start, you know, redoing their kitchens or start going, uh, you know, to a, now, suddenly everybody went to Portugal or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> I've heard whatever that one too, yeah. Is, um, at least that's on the East Coast, that's where they went. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, when the people that we associate with, uh, you know, it's friends and family, it's also co-workers. So a lot of consumer desire comes from people we encounter in the workplace. 
and more and more the workplace is a place where people talk about you know where they went on vacation or what their new car is or the redo model of the kitchen i mean why do people take you on tours whenever they remodel their houses right it's to get that status value of the right. money that they yeah and people in other certain countries would never want you to see their new toilet like that's not something that <laughs> did oh, we <laughs> used to value the environment more and try to limit waste or is it the case that we will always maximize consumption and now have more advanced production capabilities this is a great question and i think too many people think it's human nature that leads us to consume the way we do and i i take issue with that for a couple of reasons first of all we did value the environment more in the past and we had a lot less waste and we can go back to that example of India where you where you or other poor countries which have a closed loop system. So it's not until countries become wealthy that they can afford to even have waste, mm-hmm. that they can spend human labor and use precious ecological resources to just waste them. Um, but it's it's a combination the culture and the economy go together in a certain way so as we become richer and can afford to waste we also develop a culture that valorizes waste mm-hmm. um that 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 values waste and so um one of the reasons i think this these are learned behaviors is if we look at historically the behavior of workers as they have gotten more money and historically, see, you see a lot of behavior in terms of people wanting to work less, take more leisure. They're not just out to make as much money as they can, but if they had the opportunity, they would um, you know, make what they need to meet their needs, and then they'd stop working. Mm-hmm. And you, you see so much less of that today because we have developed that culture in which there's, you never have enough and in which increasing numbers of people are actually very materially insecure, so they have to work long hours. Right. right. So would, would conscious consumption then be enough to make a dent in in our consumption overall, or or is it is it still, you know, worth it if not? How do we how do we fix this? Conscious consumption is there's a it has a role to play, but it's not gonna be able to solve the basic problems that we're talking about, the problems of ecological overshoot of you know, too much waste of people working too hard and, you know, being too insecure. You really have to change the system in which we're operating. So you have to change the economic incentives. Um, Right now, the incentive is for businesses and people to pollute because we're not paying the cost of that. We're allowing uh, businesses and people to destroy the climate because they can put as much CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as they want with no cost. So you can't expect a moral crusade or a, you know, a sort of a, a, a purely cultural movement to solve a problem like this. You need action on both sides. Well, the reason the questions are good is because Rachel wrote them. I would like to ask you something off the cuff, though. If you could immediately institute three laws or provisions or mandates, particularly for America, and I also want to kind of 
ask where you think we stand within the broader picture, what might they be? In other words, you were talking about until the, the cost is greater than the ignoring of the issue. What might a, a few things be that you think would could write that? The first thing is that we have to stop all uh, oil and gas exploration, infrastructure, etc. cetera, uh, fossil fuel, no more, zero building of fossil fuels. Um, so that's the first thing. The second is that we need a, a kind of robust, what we call just transition for people who are employed in fossil fuel industries to have you know, alternative employment and livelihood. So we can't do this on the back of one group of people. Um, and the third is that we um, put in, a, I mean, I'm cheating a little bit, but a series of regulations about when some of the energy alternatives have to come online. So whether it's electric cars or uh, when utilities have to start using uh, renewable energy and so forth. So we need some, we need some to put some dates there. I mean, basically, we've got to half our greenhouse gas emissions in 10 years. Mm-hmm. So we need some pretty robust action. And we have to, st- you know, as my friend Bill <laughs> McKibben says, you know, when you're in a hole, the first thing that you need to do is you have to stop digging. And that's what the, <laughs> the, the fossil fuel infrastructure is just digging is way deeper into a hole because those are long, that's long lived infrastructure. And we've got to transition out of fossil fuels. So that's yeah. what I do. So some government intervention, and I've been reading a little bit about like extended producer responsibility, right? So that's also where the business comes in. And then people have to be wise to what they're buying. Of course, this is the system that people have become used to or have inherited unless they really, you know, take some deep learnings. They don't know that that there's anything different. Yeah. And, it, you know, it we've got to go beyond like the intention of consumers to consume responsibly and so forth. I mean, that's all great and important. And I've spent a lot of my career working on that. But right now, you know, we are at a point where we have to change the system, the structure. It's not working. It's, it is, you know, taking us to not only climate destabilization, but, you know, a sixth mass extinction. When we look at what's happening to biodiversity around the world, species, I mean, we are, we are, you know, very perilously close to the cliff, falling off the cliff and having some really catastrophic things happen. And so we've got to just take a hard look at ourselves. You know, it's not going to be easy. There's a lot that's been great about consumer culture. And, you know, people like it for for a lot of good reasons, but it's just not feasible at the scale that we are currently uh, producing and consuming. So how, uh, all A, are there uh, alternative economic models that you prefer? And also, how can or could an emerging economy avoid winding up in the rut where we find ourselves? I think the key to a transition that's actually going to be good for people, that's going to have a, you know, that's going to work and is not going to be just about taking stuff away, is for us to take or productivity growth. And let, let's just focus on productivity growth for a second because it's a really important thing. It's It means that we can produce more and more every year with the same amount of labor. That's what productivity growth means. 
So every individual for, you know, an hour or per day or per year has a certain amount of our collective production that they they can produce. And with productivity growth, they can do more of it in any given amount of time. So what's happened in this country in the last 50 years is we just kept producing more and more with that productivity growth. And that's really in contrast to where we were for the 100 years before that, which is that we were using a lot of it to give ourselves more free time. And I think that the the really kind of the, the path that's, that can really help us going forward to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and reduce our impact on the environment, at the same time giving people more well-being is to use productivity growth to progressively reduce hours of work. So let's just say we've got just about enough that we're producing as a country right now. We've got to redistribute it. Some people have too much, other people have too little. But if we just think about this level of production, it's plenty for our population. And so every year, instead of producing more, let's just give ourselves time off. I'm about to start a really what I think is going to be a great research project in Ireland uh, for companies that are going to four-day work weeks without reducing pay. Mm. The Spanish government is about to start a big pilot on this four-day work week. It's super popular. It'll help families. It'll help communities. It'll help our health. It'll help our environment. I, w- I think it's the way to go. I wonder if the inversion of what the expectations were of people in the workplace rather being able to work from home or working less of the last year with the pandemic, I wonder if that was in, in some ways a one element of being able to set the stage for a change like that. I, but more importantly, I want to ask you this. Um, are you at all in favor of robotics and AI helping to increase that productivity as part of the solution? Yes. So, I, I mean, there are things that are going on in the ro- in the AI world especially that are, I think, really bad, like facial recognition and and so forth. So there's a lot that needs to change about it. But the basic idea that software and robots are going to take over functions that humans were doing, I think is really important. It's part of why I I started studying the gig economy, Um, platforms like, you know, Uber, Lyft, etc. I think there's a lot of potential in those, not the way they're being run right now, which is for the interests of a small group of owners and VCs and so forth, but they actually have the potential to give workers more freedom, more autonomy, and to allow workers to run their own companies because management becomes a little bit obsolete with some of these software. So I am definitely in favor of these things, but not when the process that's driving them is being controlled by a small group of very wealthy people. I wanted to ask, actually, if you can think of a time when we've done a good job reckoning with the consequences of our consumption in history. Like, is there any really good example that we can point to when we humans got it right or Americans got it right? Well, we had a moment there in the late 60s and 70s. It was, you know, the Cuyahoga River was burning and... You know, everybody understood the earth was under siege. We didn't actually understand about global warming at that point. But an Earth Day was, you know, huge thing that was it was so broad across our society. That's the other thing we don't 
realize today was how bipartisan and how broad-based that that moment of the environmental movement was. And, um, you know, it's Nixon who signed our landmark environmental laws into, uh, he signed those bills, clean air, clean water, endangered species, etc. So that was a really good moment. But what happened right after that was that you had a, a conservative backlash and, and a, a war, you know, what's been called the war against Greens, but basically the war against environmentalism begins, you know, less than a decade after that. And so it has been, uh, you know, the, the, the real tragedy of what's happened with the environment is that it became a partisan issue mm -hmm. and you know it's it's about this is about science this isn't about political beliefs um but it's been turned into something that you either people either believe in global warming or they don't well it's not a thing that's about belief you know it's a scientific finding and that's the, the partisanship has been really the problem <laughs> and five decades later, we are on that same page again. 25 years ago, were you thinking we'd be somewhere like where we are? Had you hoped we'd be further ahead as far as solutions or that reckoning? Or what were your expectations and, and how have they and haven't they been met? I should say, first of all, I'm like a really congenital optimist. So I probably, <laughs> if my memory were good enough to remember exactly where I was 25 years ago, I would have thought, oh, we'd be way beyond where we are now. So I would have had a very optimistic point of view. But if I were being realistic 25 years ago, I would have realized that um, most people didn't know the difference between the hole in the ozone and anthropogenic climate change, you know, human-caused global warming, um, there was no real um, ability to take on the power of the fossil fuel companies at that point. It just wasn't understand. The idea that we could go off of fossil fuels was seen as hallucinatory. So 25 years ago, we just weren't there yet. Europe was a lot farther along, um, and the the... the the distance that we've come, I would say in the last five years, because we had a long period there where I think nothing was really happening. We were really treading water. The last five years and even the last two, I think, have been extraordinary. It's like the, the dam has broken in terms of people's understanding of what's going on with the climate. And I don't think they're there yet on biodiversity, mm -hmm. but in terms of climate change, people get it now you know there's a small group that's holding out but they're really on the defensive and they're losing but 25 years ago no this it's it's pretty recent i think i'm sitting here just listening to you and rachel talk and i was imagining someone in their car or listening to it, and i was like wow this is great and i also feel like i'm hoping that as as our coalition grows and as we start having forums and stuff that we can challenge you to come and, and keep helping us uh, attempt to at least diversify and, and lead some of the thought on this and stay in dialogue. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just having a great time listening to be honest. 
It's always nice to talk to a professor. Yeah. I'm so glad that you said when I was saying what are the three things on your hit list and one was fossil fuels, but then it was the, you know, looking after those people. I feel terrible for British Petroleum. I think about, man, they had that big thing, but then but then how are they supposed to have their whole structure of what their life has been built around to say you can't do that anymore? It's almost like speaking of the sociology, this is almost like a a massive psychological trauma transition issue and i think sometimes that if you're too fuzzy about that they'll just go yeah 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 it's a it's a big you know take care of me take care of me when in fact they just don't want to change but how can business carry enough of the burden to fix things regarding how they're made and consumed let me just start with your first point which i think is a really important one i grew up in a coal mining town in southwestern pennsylvania and so I, I understand that there are whole cultures that have been, been built around things like coal mines. I mean, sadly, the sort of more valiant parts of that, I think, are, are gone now because of the way that these industries are operating, whether it's, you know, mountaintop removal or fracking. They don't have the same, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think they have the same culture that, say, coal mining culture had in the past. Absolutely. This is it's an economic transition but it's also a cultural transition and we got to respect that well business is interesting so on the one hand i would say i want to respect the people who are doing the work in those industries not necessarily the people who are holding the shares and so they've made a lot of the fossil fuel industry has made a lot of money they've made a lot more than you know the average business and so part of the question that we're going to be facing as a society is sort of are we going to buy the buy them off or and let them take even more more of the value of society the investors i mean i think we need to support the employees but not necessarily the owners um so that that's sort of a point about the transition and how you do a transition and there are transitions that go in the other way where you buy off the owners to you know get them to to stop fighting the transition and you know, we'll see. We'll see how far down that road we go. Hmm. But I think the big question for business is sort of business writ large. Like, where are you? Where is business? Because one of the biggest frustrations I've had with American business over the last those last twenty five years is why they're not standing up to the fossil fuel industries. I mean, where is tech? You know, the, I mean, fossil fuel is taking us off the cliff into oblivion and you've got these other companies that just you know they're letting it happen they may go carbon neutral themselves they may you know say the right things they're still supporting politicians on both sides they're still part of the chamber of commerce and some of the institutional factors mm -hmm. that are that are really propping up the fossil fuel industry but i think it's time that you know american business starts looking out for itself for its future and unless they do that they're gonna let these exxon and bp take them over the cliff wow speaking of southwest uh pennsylvania it's not exactly there but my grandmother faye ford my grandfather was an engineer in huntingdon which was just south of state college spent a lot oh. of time there my great-grandfather was a away. coal miner in uh, scranton pennsylvania oh my gosh and you do see, like, 
it, you know, there was nothing else around at the time. That was what he was able to do because that was the company that was in place. And so the idea that like he would have been able to just change his mind like that and go work to do something else was kind of difficult. It's almost like there's a cosmic eulogy that needs to be done for, I mean, yeah, we know that the work conditions were, you know, terrible. The conditions were terrible and a lot of people mm-hmm. got sick and they didn't really care about, but I like the fact, Juliet, that you're inverting the uh, the carometer to let's think about the workers because the big wigs are probably already hedging their bets to make sure mm-hmm. that they never lose a red cent anyway because they're smart like that. Well, this has been great. I hope you don't mind if we uh, reach out to you and ask you to be part of our coalition and our steering committee and all that stuff. And uh, it's just really, really cool to get your perspective. No, it's been great. Uh, really fun. I would love to participate in any way that makes sense for you guys. And it's, I'm just thrilled you're doing this. It's really wonderful. Awesome. Well, you were our icebreaker and you were uh, just the right fit. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Good to see you. you. Juliet Shore, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much.